This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Shinzen Young. Shinzen is an American mindfulness teacher who is known for his algorithmic approach to mindfulness and often uses mathematical metaphors to illustrate meditative phenomena. He leads meditation retreats throughout North America and has helped establish numerous mindful centers and programs, including the Home Practice Program. With Sounds True, Shinzen has written a new book, a book several decades in the making, called The Science of Enlightenment, How Meditation Works, where he merges scientific clarity, a hybrid of Eastern and Western teachings, and offers readers an uncommonly lucid guide to mindfulness meditation. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Shinzen and I spoke about how one of his approaches to mindfulness includes dividing and conquering, also known as a strategy Untangle and Be Free, in which he breaks down sensory experience into categories of seeing, hearing, and feeling. We also talked about how Shinzen defines mindfulness as consisting of three core powers of attention, concentration power, the power of sensory clarity, and the power of equanimity, and how by developing mindfulness, we can be liberated from identifying with the self as a thing, and instead recognizing the fluid quality of the self. We talked about the observer trap in meditation, and how understanding that consciousness works in patterns of contraction and expansion can free us from this trap. And finally, we talked about how enlightenment can be understood on different levels and what Shinzen means when he speaks of classical enlightenment. Here's my conversation on the science of enlightenment with Shinzen Young. Shinzen, I want to begin by congratulating you on the publication of The Science of Enlightenment. I know that this book has been several decades in the making, and I just want to say thank you so much for bringing it out into the world in book form, The Science of Enlightenment. Well, I guess I have to reciprocate by thank you so much for... um motivating me to do that and being so patient uh, with a project that was supposed to uh, take a year, taking an order of magnitude more time than that. But um, I'm feeling the love. Thank you. Well, as you teach in the science of enlightenment, having equanimity in the face of whatever's happening, including maybe the impatience I felt, you know, I had plenty of chances to practice equanimity. I see. Yes, I'm uh, just joking with you, Shinzen. I'm it was so good pleased. For your, mon- your daily monastery. <laughs> yes, I'm so pleased that the science <laughs> well, of enlightenment. It was actually good for me too, because my main, you know, one of my main struggles in life has been perennial procrastination, and um, through a combination of the practice and some behaviorally oriented uh, therapy. Um, I finally was able to break through that a little bit. So it pushed me to, but it was a a really good push. Well, now I'm going to have to ask you a question about that. Behaviorally oriented therapy to address procrastination. I think a lot of listeners have procrastination problems. How did you break through? Well, as I said, it was actually a combination of my practice and that uh, behaviorally oriented accountability and support structure. So 
when we use the word enlightenment, uh, it can either refer in a narrow way to uh, a kind of paradigm shift that is permanent and uh, sort of frees one from the limited perspective. But we can also use the word uh, enlightenment in a broader sense to include that paradigm shift plus becoming an admirable human being. In other words, integrating that paradigm shift into your behaviors uh, in a way that you live more skillfully in terms of objective actions. So uh, the core skills and techniques of mindfulness can help with behavior change. Un- overcoming procrastination is one form of behavior change. It's something I'm not doing that I should be doing. I'm resisting, so I need to uh, overcome that resistance. Another form of behavior change, is, obviously, is something I'm doing, like abusing a substance or food, and I need to change, stop doing that, change that behavior. So basically, there's two kinds of behavior change. Now, where practice and techniques enter in is that uh, they will allow you to deconstruct the negative urge, either deconstruct the urge to do the action that you would best not do, but you can also use it to deconstruct the resistance to taking an action that you would best do. So in my case, when I would have resistance to the writing uh, or other responsibilities, I would um, break it up into mental image, mental talk, and body emotion, and it's divide and conquer. So I would sort of deconstruct it until... uh, it lost its hold over me. And then I found that I could overcome the procrastination at that time. However, I found that in this particular case with me, the techniques, the mindfulness techniques and the mindfulness skills were insufficient to uh, overcome my procrastination enough um, so that I could write that book and do other things that I was resisting doing. So I think it's important to understand the awesome power of concentration, clarity, and equanimity. Those are the basic mindfulness skills as I define it. It's important to understand the awesome power of those um, to improve uh, all dimensions of a person's happiness. But it's also important to understand the limitations of those and what needs to be supplemented for what might be called optimal happiness. So if you can apply your practice to a behavior change and you are sufficiently successful with that, well and good. But I wasn't. The practice wasn't enough. Um, So what else had to be supplemented that's not part of practice is something that I call uh, a behaviorally oriented accountability and support structure. (laughs) So it's someone giving you small manageable assignments and then um, you reporting. Uh, You either did it or you didn't. Um, And if you didn't do it, then you have to sort of you know, admit that if you did do that, then it's good. One way or another, they support you. So what happened was through a combination of being given these assignments with this external structure, which was a a therapist, actually a psychiatrist, but he was functioning as a behavioralist because that's what I asked him for. Um, So he would give me the assignments I'd have resistance, I would apply the technique, it would be usually successful because they were small assignments. And then he escalated the assignments and the depth of my practice uh, kept pace with that. And the combination of the two was uh, an effective cocktail. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a lot in what you just said, and I want to pull out a couple of pieces. You were talking about your definition of 
mindfulness and deconstructing our experience. And you said that in the way you see mindfulness, it's a combination of concentration, clarity, and equanimity. And I don't think that's common language for people when they think of mindfulness. So tell me about those three elements. Sure. Um, so the book is called The Science of Enlightenment. So I already mentioned a couple things about enlightenment. Um, one of the things that I would mention about science is that the nuts and bolts of science um, is uh, divide and conquer. Now, some people don't understand that phrase. It sounds sort of uh, imperialistic or <laughs> aggressive. But divide and conquer means if you have um, something that's a complex situation, break it up into its manage into small natural atoms, and then you can conquer your overwhelm. Okay, so um, the uh, I would say that most of the book is about how the spirit of science has informed the way I teach uh, meditation slash mindfulness. So one of the ways the spirit of science has informed the way I teach is that I think dimensionally. I break things down into their basic components. And um, I'm a bit of a stickler for precision in language because that's another part of the nuts and bolts of science is to be, is to be able to say what you mean, <laughs> to actually put in words the concept you have uh, in your head. So <clears throat> it, the endeavor of meditation broadly, worldwide, can be broken down into three basic dimensions, three basic attentional skills um, that I call concentration power, sensory clarity, and equanimity. Uh, now, the reason for defining things that way is it becomes a basis for a very uh, broad and clear analysis of not just the different forms of mindfulness or the different forms of Buddhist practice, but broadly contemplative-based psycho-spiritual growth uh, throughout the millennia and over the whole planet. You can look at each tradition and see in what way they uh, explicitly or implicitly uh, developed those three skills. Concentration power is the ability to attend to what you deem relevant. Sensory clarity is the ability to untangle the strands of an experience into its basic components. And equanimity is the ability to allow those strands to come and go without push and pull. So I've sort of analyzed meditation into those components. Uh, now, let's say that we're dealing with a practical issue, like I'm going through uh, a negative emotion, or I'm experiencing a negative urge uh, that I want to not act on. So any emotion that you might experience will involve three dimensions of sensory experience. So now we're applying dimensional analysis or the spirit of science to the experience of self. So mental image and mental talk are the, um, are the thought components, and you can break them down. Uh, you can break thought into a visual and an auditory component. And then you have the body emotion. So when I have a, uh, a challenging emotion or a negative urge, I use the clarity piece to uh, detect what part of it is a visual thought, what part is auditory thought, and what part is body emotion. That's clarity. Then I briefly... When each one of those arises, I briefly focus all my attention on it. 
That's called kanika samadhi in the mindfulness tradition, momentary high concentration. Um, as the res- and then I also try to give permission for that sensory component in that moment to expand and contract as it wishes. That's the equanimity piece. Well, it turns out that when you habitually apply those three skills to the inner see here feel that constitutes a negative emotion, that negative emotion causes less suffering. When you apply it to a positive emotion, that positive emotion delivers more fulfillment, so it's win-win. But when, uh, when you apply those same skills to the same three elements that constitute a negative urge, say to procrastinate or to overeat, um, what happens is they lose their power to control your behavior. So we can use the practice both to, uh, we can use the same skills applied, the same three dimensions of skill, of focus skill, applied in the same three dimensions of sensory experience, mental image, mental talk, and body emotion. Um, Turns out it's enormously general and broad. If it's a pleasant thing you're experiencing, it will be more fulfilling. If it's unpleasant, it will cause less suffering. And if it's a negative urge, its control over you will weaken. So that's another way that the spirit of science can inform the way we teach meditation. Because I've just given you a relatively simple paradigm that works for an enormous range of human applications suffer less, be more fulfilled, and be able to uh, act more skillfully in the world. You know, Shinzen, you introduce so many exciting insights, at least exciting to me, in the science of enlightenment. So there's so much I want to talk to you about. I'm kind of bursting here. But as we're talking about this divide and conquer approach, you also call it untangle and be free. Yeah, because some people think divide and conquer is <laughs> too violent. Yeah, I like the Femi, untangle and be free. And part of that has to do with untangle this solid sense of self. Be free from this sense of a solid thing that is the self. And could you help me understand how using this deconstructive approach, we get insight into what it means to be free of a solid sense of self. Yeah, that's very interesting and very deep. Um, And I would like about three hours for that, but I know you would like something in more like three minutes. So when you start out, you're just overwhelmed. Uh, You have a sense that there's a thing inside me called the self. You don't have much tangibility behind it, but there is this, all people have this strong sense, um, all adult people um, have this strong sense that there is a thing inside me called a self that is fundamentally separate from an it called another person, another object, or more broadly, the world. So <clears throat> you sort of start out there. There's this strong sense of of something that's separate. Then you are given a technique that asks you to, moment by moment, say one of three words. Make your best guess. The three words are see, hear, feel. And typically I have people do that, uh, speaking it out loud uh, initially. Then they can do it mentally. So see is short for see in, meaning I'm experiencing a mental image. Here is short for hear in, I'm listening to mental talk, self-talk, or a dialogue inside my head. Feel is feel in, that's body emotion. So I'm going to ask you moment by moment to, and it's okay if you have to guess and grope, 
say exactly one of three words, depending on whether your experience of self is dominated by a visual thought, auditory thought, or body emotion. And lo and behold, people can do it after a little bit of practice. Once you do that, now, okay, let's look a little more carefully at CN, at mental image. We're going to just look at that for a while. And uh, so if you have a mental image, say C. If you have no mental, uh, CN, if you have no mental image, say C rest. If there's no mental image, notice that you're free from form. If there is a mental image, notice whether it's stable or changing. Um, Okay, you do that for a little while. Now we're going to do the same thing with your mental talk. If there's no mental talk, notice that you're free from concepts, or at least verbal concepts. If there is mental talk, listen. It might just immediately vanish. It might stick around. Um, Just let it be there. Then we're going to do the same thing for body emotion. We're going to look individual. Now, as you're doing that, you're going to start to notice that those mental images are not always stable. Often they immediately vanish, or even if they stick around, they sort of melt and morph. Same thing for mental talk, and actually same thing for body emotion. Now you start to get interested in the vanishing, constant vanishings, and the sort of waving, waviness in there. Um, and at some point, that dominates. And here's another metaphor with science, wave-particle complementarity. Okay, you start out, the self is a particle, solid and separate. Now, as we've sort of divided it into its components and then looked in a concentrated way with a lot of clarity, we start to notice a theme of change, abrupt change in the passing of things, continuous change, and that it's undulatory, vibratory. At some point, the undulatory, vibratory, vanishing aspect becomes so prominent that your experience of self shifts from I'm a particle to I am this flow of space that interacts with everything and is, in essence, nothing. So it's paradoxical self. It's an elastic self. It's both transparent and rich at the same time. (laughs) That's a sort of um, summary of what might take four days, but might also take 40 years. Well, I I love it, Shinzen, when you use this wave particle complementarity to talk about the self. I notice for me that brings a lot of insight in that sometimes I do experience the particle nature and sometimes I experience the wave nature. And one of the points that you bring out in the science of enlightenment is this quote from Suzaki Roshi, you must learn to let go of self and learn how to manifest self. I thought that was really interesting because I think a lot of times when people get interested in mindfulness meditation, they're you know so determined to see that they're not a self, that this idea of the particle part of us is, is no longer... Yeah, we have to push away the particle. If there's ever a particle, that's a problem. So I wonder if you can talk about how this is a complementarity a little bit more and, and what does it mean to learn how to both manifest ourself and let go of ourself? Yeah, I really struggled a lot with this one in the early years of my practice. For the first 15 or 20 years of my practice, I literally tortured myself trying to get rid of the sense of self because according to what I had read and studied, um, success with the Buddhist path is when you realize, quote, no self, so my interpretation was, well, then if there's a self, um, uh, a perception of self, then I'm not there yet. Um, my meditation is a failure. Um, so without realizing it, I was subtly suppressing, tightening around the arising of self. 
but um, you can't really uh, suppress that because the activation of the inner system, mental image, mental talk, and body emotion, is natural. It's something that just happens. Anyway, um, I was talking to a student about his practice, and uh, I said, you know, how are things going? Um, And he said, uh, well, I discovered something interesting. I'm breaking down my experience of self into uh, visual, auditory, and body components. Um, And I'm just sort of like labeling, see, hear, feel. Um, And I thought, wow, that's an interesting way to think about um, how the sense of self arises. Uh, In early Buddhism, um, there's the notion that the sense of self comes about through five elements called the five aggregates. And there's an implication in later Buddhism, in Vajrayana, that it involves mental image, mental talk, and and body, because when you try to uh, have an experience of merging with, um, uh, with an archetype in what's called deity yoga, you... It, it involves uh, visualization mantra, which is sort of the presumed mental talk of an archetype, and then uh, physical and emotional body sensations through the mudras. So I realized, wow, that's sort of an integrating theme, that there are these components, and it could be visual, auditory, and uh, somatic. So when I started to um, pay attention to how my sense of self arose, I noticed that, sure enough, whenever I'd get a mental image, especially if it was an image of my own body or my own appearance, there would be this, like, tightening. Uh, and as soon as mental talk arose, there'd be, like, this physical tension because I don't want that talk there. i got to have, like, quiet. Um, and uh, I was also tensing around the arising of body emotion. Interestingly, not just the unpleasant ones, like, uh, nervousness or uh, uh, anger or embarrassment, but even the pleasant ones. I noticed, like, if I got a self-referential pleasure, like someone would praise me, I start to smile, and then I tighten around that smile. I was like afraid to experience the pleasure of approbation. So once I had, once I started to use this relatively simple. Uh, untangle paradigm that was actually suggested to be my uh, student, um, I could really see how I was suppressing the arising of self. And then I started to try to not do that, to, in fact, do the opposite, to give total permission, in general, for the inner system and particularly for the inner system when it's self-referential, when I get images of my own self, talk about who I am, what's good, bad about me, and um, praise and, and, and blame sensations in my body, especially those self-referential inner seer feel, but in general, all inner seer feel. I started to just say, okay, just expand and contract, last as long or as short as you want, I give you complete permission to just do your thing. It was only then that I started to get some sense of liberation because what I realized is there's a natural cycle. Um, Just as the day shifts uh, between daylight and nighttime, um, our inner system activates and rests over and over again. By inner system, I mean mental image, mental talk, and body emotion. That system activates and then dies away, activates and then dies away. So I realize that liberation is not just the absence of the self. It's noticing when the self is absent. And then it's also giving permission 
for that system to activate as a flow of space. So my uh, soundbite is if the system goes inactive, there's no internal image talk or body emotion. That's like a no real, no self, no self experience. Everyone has it thousands of times a day. They just don't notice. So no self, if you notice it, no problem. But then what happens if the system activates? Well, if you get out of the way and give it permission to expand and contract, it turns into a fluid self. So then the other part of the soundbite is flow self, no problem. No self, no problem. Flow self, no problem. And you're alternating uh, the nothingness when things come and return and whether they return with the doingness of space. And there's no time left for somethingness of self and world. I love that, Shinzen, that fluidity, that fluidity. Now, a couple times you've mentioned expansion and contraction. And, and to me, this teaching that is interspersed throughout the Science of Enlightenment book, you call it the expansion-contraction paradigm of how consciousness works is really one of the contributions, if you will, that I think you're making that in the intro, this is something that you learned from your studies with Suzaki Roshi, at least you credit him with introducing you to the expansion contraction paradigm of how consciousness works. So can you explain that to our listeners? Sure. Um, the, um, o over the years, my way of describing um, the effects of meditation on my life um, uh, has changed because it's like a many-faceted jewel. You know, you can see one side, you can see another side. There was a time when I mostly liked to talk about it in terms of oneness, but then there were... You can also talk about it sort of in terms of emptiness. Uh, there are times that I've been mostly wanting to talk about it in terms of true love. Um, lots of different ways you can talk about these things. And, of course, um, that's very confusing to people uh, when they begin their practice because it's like, well, this one says this, and this one says this, and this one says that. Um, it's the famous story of the blind man and the elephant, uh, which does come from Buddhism and is, in fact, a metaphor for exactly this. There's just different ways to think about it. Um, but if you were to ask me what's the, the deepest way that I currently think about um, how consciousness works, it would be the expansion-contraction paradigm. However, first I need to say what I mean by consciousness. I, by consciousness, I just mean sensory experience. So by sensory experience, I mean what we see, hear, and feel. Uh, we have physical sights, physical sounds, physical impact on our body. We have mental image, mental talk. We have body emotion. If we're willing to put the chemical senses of smell and taste broadly under body, you know, we've got this inner and outer visual auditory somatic uh, sensorium. That's what I mean by consciousness. So it's, it's not something abstract. To me, the word consciousness is just uh, a synonym for sensory experience. So sensory experience has to arise in time and space. So in terms of the brain, um, a, an inner, outer, or mixed sensory experience starts with an activation. That activation spreads through the brain, and it takes time for it to spread. Now, it doesn't take very long. We're talking about uh, milliseconds, thousandths of a second. Uh, in neuroscience, typically, you, you monitor brain activity uh, on a graph that has a time scale of milliseconds, so thousands of a 
second. So 100 milliseconds is a tenth of a second. And you can see things. You can see that a perception might take a second or two or three to go from its inception to the person saying, I'm now having a conscious experience. So what happens between the very instant of an inner, outer, or mixed arising and the ordinary experience of the world's out there, there's a self back here, and we're in a relationship. Well, um, in those few hundred milliseconds, something actually happens, something that you can uh, learn to detect that's always present, always been present, always will be present because it's what happens, okay? Um, So as I mentioned, concentration, sensory clarity, equanimity. So sensory clarity has two sides. We we talked about the untangling, uh, the breaking down of things into manageable components, but there's also a a detection dimension to clarity, the ability to detect subtle things. And the subtlest of all subtle is what happens in those few initial few hundredths of a millisecond as sensory experience is self-organizing. With practice, your clarity skill becomes such that you can actually tangibly experience that pre-conscious phase that's present in everyone's experience. But most people have not developed the clarity to detect in a tangible way the process of pre-conscious processing. Neither do they have the concentration power to hold attention on it as they go about their daily activities. Neither do they have the equanimity to allow the 10,000-somethings that arise on the surface of that to come and go without being caught up in them. So if you get an, uh, if you get the clarity to detect what precedes each moment of experience, you have the concentration to hold it 24/7. Uh, that's and then you have the equanimity to deal with everything that's not it, <laughs> which is all the coagulations of self and world that arise on its surface. If you can do all of that, that's what in Zen they call riding the ox. You, you're 24-7 mounted on um, the nature of, what in Zen they would say the nature of the mind, but it doesn't mean the mind. Uh, chitta or, or, or shin in Chinese, it means, uh, it means consciousness, the nature of sensory experience, the formless perfection that precedes and follows and pervades every ordinary experience. So you're able to hold it. So, But expansion and contraction are in no way different from the early formulation in Theravada Buddhism that is called arising and passing. So if you read the classic Theravada manual, uh, the Visuddhimagga, uh, on this, uh, the, uh, the description of seven stages that people go through before stream entry. There's a stage where you're intensely aware of arising and passing. And then there's an, a subsequent stage where you're intensely aware that no sooner is it arising, but it is already passing. And the it is anything. Uh, uh, an experience of the outer world, the inner world, uh, and so forth. So this sense, if we talk temporally, uh, we talk about as it is arising, it's already passing. Uh, Jack Cornfield's teacher, Ajahn Chah, has a great talk about that, where he says he looks at a glass, a physical glass, and he says, someday this glass will be broken. 
Well, for me, it's already broken. Well, that's the perception that no sooner is something arising, but it's already passing. However, since sensory events occupy with depth and height, another way to say it is no sooner is it expanding, but it's already contracting. So why use expansion contraction as opposed to arising and passing if they mean exactly the same thing is that the there's a couple minor advantages to the expansion contraction. One of them is that um, you might get into a situation with arising and passing where there's a meditator here observing the arising and passing, which causes a separation. And that would probably be a standard Zen criticism of Vipassana. However, that problem does not necessarily happen. In fact, it usually doesn't happen. But if a problem were to happen with Vipassana, that would be the characteristic problem. Well, the Zen solution is um, there's an expanding, simultaneous expansion contraction of space And both the world and the observer are born in uh, in the folds of that. So the expansion-contraction paradigm has a marginal advantage that it breaks down the fixated observer. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to soundstrue.com backslash free. That's soundstrue.com backslash free. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Now, I think what you're saying here is really important, Shinzen, so I want to make sure I understand it, because I think a lot of meditators fall into what you name in the science of enlightenment as the observer trap. You know, they become stuck in the witness, if you will. They're able to witness mental talk, mental image, body, feel, but then they're a witness. I am the witness. So help me understand how feeling into expansion and contraction help someone not fall into the observer trap? Um, this is one of the things that you, um, you sort of have to experience. I'm not sure I could um, uh, explain it um, very well. Um, I could take a stab. Um, so, Usually, if you have a sense of an observer, it sort of has a location, okay? So, um, uh, if you think about how people describe overwhelm, they describe it in two terms. One is um, that I'm flooded. The other is that I can't hold on to a center. Now, um, a good doctor will cure your disease, but only a great doctor can show you you were never sick. Um, What people call overwhelm or flooding, too much is happening in too many places too, too quickly, that's just nature trying to expand you and, uh, Make it so you, uh, uh, so that you have to um, give give out. <laughs> okay. On the other hand, the fact that you uh, you can't find your center, you're scrambling around to find a center to find firm ground, but you can't. This is the experience of freak out, overwhelm. Right? Something happens and it's like there's no solid ground under me anymore. The rug's been pulled out. Well, another way to look at that is that every attempt to hold a center, um, uh, 
off-center. So this, the ground is constantly collapsing under your feet. That's contraction. Now, uh, you can either interpret that as horrible, or you can reframe it as um, nature is making me huge and tiny at the same time. And um, so I'm large enough to uh, embrace the galaxies and small enough to uh, abide uh, in, an at- in each atom. And then you become, um, you become everything and nothing. Um, and um, you're set free. Now, Shinzen, I I realize in this conversation we're having that a listener might think, wow, they're really in the deep end of meditative practice. And your book, of course, is called The Science of Enlightenment, How Meditation Works. And so, of course, we have to be in the, the deep end to address a title like that. When you say how meditation works, could you just summarize for people, works to do what? How meditation works to accomplish what? I can summarize it in four little words, each one of which contains a huge concept. Develop attention skills and use them to optimize happiness. So work means that your, uh, your practice is working, means that you're, uh, you have optimized happiness. So what does that mean? Well, when you have uncomfortable uh, situations or uncomfortable sensory experiences, they bother you less and less and less. When you have pleasant situations and pleasant sensory experiences, they fulfill you more and more and more you progressively are understanding yourself at deeper and deeper levels. First, you understand yourself at a psychological, personal level, then at a subconscious, sort of deep psychological level. Then you understand yourself as a sensory system. Finally, you understand yourself as primordial perfection, which is the deep end that we just described a few minutes ago. In addition to that, your performance skills and your character skills are improving and what you say, what you do say and think in terms of your actions in the world have progressively more creativity and bounce and spontaneity. And last but not least, you find yourself deriving more and more of your fulfillment from service to others. So those are the five dimensions of it works. How you develop those skills is, well, someone teaches you at least one technique. You you don't have hardly any concentration, clarity, and equanimity at the beginning. That's fine. But you practice that technique or techniques, those techniques, um, a little bit each day. You try to do micro hits during the day in addition to your, say, morning formal practice. Occasionally you do intensive retreats. As the months and years pass, your concentration, clarity, and equanimity uh, grow, just like muscles, if you exercise them daily, grow. And at some point, you start to notice um, uh, all of the different types and levels of improvement in happiness that I mentioned. Now, you mentioned in these different ways that one's life changes, that there's this change in one's character values, if you will. I'm not quite sure what word you use, but you know how one expresses the virtues in the world. And I, I think, Shinzen, something I want to talk to you about, that one of the reasons people that I know have become cynical about enlightenment, even just the word enlightenment, Tammy, don't talk to me about enlightenment, is because they have seen so many teachers 
who seem to be able to teach on things like impermanence, expansion and contraction, a fluid sense of self, etc. And yet in their lives have manifested, you know, terrible actions that have been hurtful to other people. You know what I'm talking about, of course, many teachers like this, not not one, not any one teacher, but so many teachers that have abused power, money, sex in one way or another. It's like enlightenment is a crock of hooey, Tammy. Look at these teachers. Look at them. And I'm curious how you make sense out of that. Well, that's pretty close to home. Uh, So obviously something that I've thought about a lot. And it's informed my presentation. Um, So you'll recall that I said that we could use the word uh, enlightenment in a narrow sense to be a sort of measure of how liberated you are from identifying with the mind and body. We can also use enlightenment in a broader sense to mean um, that plus how admirable you are as a human being by um, the ordinary canons of your culture. Um, Now, the classical formulation in early Buddhism was the latter. Um, The Buddha was described as vidya charana sampanno, meaning... um, He had his act together both in terms of illumination and conduct. So if we use enlightenment to just mean this paradigm shift or this insight or illumination that frees you from the identification with the mind and body, that has an interesting relationship to refining yourself as a human being in the world. What is the relationship? The relationship is that that perspective um, gives you a place to stand where you can optimally refine how you carry yourself in the world. So that's one part of the relationship. However, even though, uh, uh, oh, and also, um, that perspective will make you inclined to be a better person. But, so two things so far. Having the liberated consciousness makes it easier to be a better person. Having it makes you be inclined to be a better person. And now we have the big but, because you, you, like the song goes, you can't always get what you want. What we would want is that having that, that liberated perspective would guarantee that you become a better person. And unfortunately, that is not true. Other factors have to enter in. You remember I was pretty adamant about we want to be clear of both about the power of these practices and the limitations of these practices. What else is needed besides... So I I told you how I dealt with my um, procrastination. Now, that was becoming a more admirable person in the world. And by the way, I have to do the old 12-step thing. I am a recovering procrastinator. I will always be a procrastinator, okay? It's a struggle, even now, but a lot better, okay? Um, Well, what did I have to do? It it wasn't enough to have liberation from the mind and body. I needed 18 months with a a behaviorally oriented uh, psychiatrist with weekly assignments. Um, So one thing that's needed is a list of guidelines general ethical guidelines that we take seriously. And in Buddhism, it's four basic ones, or if you're in recovery, it's five, because there's abstaining from intoxicants. 
Um, those are general guidelines. We need general guidelines. You uh, need to keep feedback doors open from everyone in your world so that you they're able to uh, reflect to you the good ways and bad ways that you're carrying yourself in the world. There's not a barrier either perceived by the people around you or a barrier that you create or a barrier that your social structure creates. You have to assiduously remove barriers to feedback um, that you would receive from everyone in your world, um, including a beginning, if you're a teacher, there needs to be a way a beginning student can confront you if they think you're off base. Um, so that element I call keeping the feedback channels open. And then the other thing that you may need is you, you, may take, you may consider the guidelines to be important. You may even have these feedback loops, or, or feedback channels, rather, you may uh, be using the practice to deconstruct negatives and to reinforce positives, yet still the behavior does not change. What else do you need? A behaviorally oriented accountability and support structure, a 12-step program or a counselor or what have you. Now, it is very easy for someone in a teaching position to have those feedback channels close. And it is very uh, difficult for someone in a teaching position that's been trained in Buddhism to realize that, hey, I might have to go to uh, um, a, a behaviorist or a therapist or something because I'm just not... I'm not cracking it with the practice. However, I think you will find that rarely, if ever, where there's a situation where the person has a strong practice, keeps those feedback channels open, takes the guidelines seriously, and is open to... uh, a behaviorally oriented accountability and support structure, I'm going to say that rarely will you find problems in that situation. Typically what happens is you get a perfect storm. Um, Vajrayana and Zen arose in reaction to early Buddhism. In some ways they complement early Buddhism, but in some ways they're a reaction to early Buddhism. And early Buddhism can be a little bit moralistic, okay, Um, and be all about the rules. So there's a certain liberation aspect to uh, sort of giving another perspective. Uh, Well, it's not all about the rules, except it sort of still is all about the rules, okay? But historically, um, there's this there was a need for reaction because things had become legalistic and moralistic. Okay, but then the reaction goes too far and now you've got a problem. And then most teachers either come from or inherit, inherit a, uh, hi- a very uh, hierarchical uh, social structure. So those, those feedback channels aren't there. And it's not on their radar to go to uh, a 12-step program or a therapist. It's just culturally not. So then you you can have this perfect storm, uh, this toxic uh, cocktail of uh, deep liberation, um, but a kind of uh, um, indifferent, a kind of indifference to... um, uh, to consequences. So, Shinzen, when you said that this question hit close to home, 
Were you saying that because you've been examining this in your own experience in terms of you talked about procrastination as an issue, you know, there may be other personal challenges, or because Sasaki Roshi, who's someone that you studied with for a long time, became a figure of quite a bit of critique for sexual scandals, or both? Um, both and more. Um, uh, so Zen and Vajrayana are reactions to the problems, uh, or their reactions to early Buddhism. Well, nowadays what I teach is sort of a reaction to the problems that I've seen with so many deep traditional teachers. Not just Sasaki Roshi, but, you know, the list goes on and on. So because I've seen it, I see it's a problem, and so I have formulated things the way, you know, that I do. Also, I've had my own struggles, uh, uh, but furthermore, in a minor way, um, I've actually had at an early time in my career that problem uh, arise in myself. Now, it wasn't... Um, what do you mean, that problem arise? Uh, the problem of um, uh, people not being able to give you feedback on your behavior. I gotcha. And being, uh, the problem of being... Uh, a senior teacher who's off base. That's what I meant by that problem. Now, this was a long time ago. It was decades ago. But, and it was relatively minor, and it was not in the sex, power, or money domain. It was in a different domain, uh, a domain I was not so alert to, and I got blindsided. But basically, it was the same thing, okay, I was off base, and um, I didn't realize it. And but then I did, because thank God that there was enough. There was still an, enough uh, feedback channels in my world that eventually I had to see it. Although it took quite a while, it took a year. Students would tell me things, and I just couldn't see it. I couldn't see it. But then eventually I did see, and it was like, oh, my God, okay, i got to really change something here. So in a minor way, I've, I've been that guy. Thank God it wasn't at the level of sex, power, and money like some of these other things. It was, it was low-key relative to that, but it was still the same general. Can you share with our listeners what it was, just because I'm sure people are guessing at this point? Oh, well, um, I got into a... Um, codependent situation with another person that um, was um, um, not healthy for my role as teacher. Okay, yeah. So Shenzhen, you know, since you're so interested in precise language, there's a part of me that feels like we should have a word for the kind of narrow enlightenment, which is this knowing of fluidity. You have other words that you use in the book, The Science of Enlightenment. So one word for that narrow knowing, and then a second word for the entire wholesale change in how a person acts and behaves in every moment of their life, and the coherence and congruence between those. What do you think? We're using the same word for these two pretty different things. Yeah, I know. And it's, not good, but it's a habit that I and other teachers have, and it's a bad habit, <laughs> but we, we just get in the habit of talking that way, you know, loosely. So probably if we wanted to have a rigorous use of language, the enlightenment in the sense of the paradigm shift, maybe we could call that liberation because it does free you from the mind-body identity. And then the other thing, you know, when you've got that plus the refinement as a human, actually, I do have a term for that. I tend to call that um, classical enlightenment, in the sense that that was the classic model uh, given to us by the historical Buddha, Vidya Charana Sampanno. Um, the illumination 
and the conduct. Shenzhen, there's a lot I could talk to you about, but I think for now we'll bring our conversation to a close. Your book, The Science of Enlightenment, How Meditation Works, includes an incredible collection of your teachings, really from the past couple decades, based on Dharma talks that you've given. It's tremendous, I think, revelatory read, at least it was for me, and I'm so grateful that you got through your procrastination stuff and that this book exists in the world for other people. I think it's a great gift, so thank you so much. So I guess we could say you and I had a book together. We did. We did. (laughs) And now that baby's out in the world, baby. It is. The Science of Enlightenment, How Meditation Works from Shinzen Young. I do encourage you to check it out. Thanks, Shinzen. It's always great to talk to you. I always learn from every conversation and am impressed by your genuineness and truth-telling powers and your goodness. Thank you. My pleasure. Soundstrue.com, many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.